Well, we are moving to a new series this morning. Pastor Marvin, you may have caught a word he used several times during his prayer time. It's the word waiting. I want to talk to you about waiting a little bit for the next few weeks through the end of the year. Uh, There's a lot of waiting that goes on this time of year. Anybody waiting in lines? We don't do that as much as we used to. I mean, it used to all be waiting in lines this time of year. Uh, But now it's waiting online, maybe, sometimes for you. But we're not waiting in lines. Over the next week or so, maybe you'll wait in line because you're going to be afraid that whatever you're going to order is not going to come in on time. So you're going to go to a brick-and-mortar store, and and you're going to wait in line because they don't have enough people working there because nobody comes there anymore. All kinds of reasons. But waiting. We do a lot of waiting, right? Uh, We wait for people to come in on airplanes. We wait for flights to take off. We wait for peppermint mocha lattes to start being served, right? We wait. If you, kids wait, kids are waiting. Those kids that just left, they are waiting. They are waiting for school to end. They are waiting for Christmas to come. They are waiting for presents to be given, right? There's all kinds of waiting. I don't know what age is the best kid's age for waiting. I was thinking about that a little bit this week. Like little kids, like they don't know what they're waiting for, right? The tiny, like less than one, two, they're just like, okay, it's another day. Look, there's a box in front of me. No big deal. And then big kids, like teenagers, like my kids are teenagers. I think it's exciting for them, but it's not nearly as exciting when they were like elementary school. I think that's the age, right, where the waiting is happening. They're excited. They're counting down the days, like 100 days out, and they're getting excited, and they're waiting. There's a lot of waiting that goes on around Christmas for us, but there was a lot of waiting that went on around the original Christmas story. And we're going to talk for the next few weeks about waiting. Uh, This morning, I want to look at what were they waiting for? Some of those people in the original Christmas story that we look at, what were they waiting for? On December 26th, we're going to look at what are we waiting for in our waiting And then on Christmas Eve, on December 24th, we're going to look at the question of what is God waiting for? What is God waiting for? But this morning, I want to look at what were they waiting for? There's a lot of waiting that happened around the biblical story of Christmas. Zechariah and Elizabeth were waiting for a baby to be born. Mary and Joseph were waiting to be married. Uh, Most people, though, were just waiting for God. They were waiting for God to act, waiting for God to speak, waiting for God to do something. Between your, what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, there is only probably a blank page in your Bible, but that blank page actually represents four centuries of time. 400 years between the last words spoken to a prophet in what we know, or we call the Old Testament or the Jewish Bible, and and between the gospel starting in the New Testament with those words that Richard and Suzanne read this morning about the coming of Jesus, 400 years. 400 years of silence. 400 years where God had not spoken. 400 years of waiting. And that waiting time is important. When we celebrate Advent, I want to be clear on this, we're not pretending Jesus hasn't come yet. Like, let's be clear on that. This isn't a game like, oh, Jesus is going to come on December 25th. Like, we know Jesus has come, right? 
We're not, we're not pretending that. What we're doing is remembering what it was like in that waiting time. Remembering what it was like for those that were waiting for that first coming of Jesus and also reminding ourselves that we are in a waiting time as well. This is what we do at Advent. We do that when we sing songs like, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And just like James said, we are longing for Jesus to come. But then we're also remembering what it was like for those back then to think, God, just send some, just speak, just say something. God, you promised all these things. When's it going to happen? How long, Lord? We sing songs like, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. You've heard that one, right? That haunting song. It's one of my favorites, but it is haunting, isn't it? O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. We just came out of a series where we talked about that we are living as exiles in a land, right? We, the Bible says that just like the Israelites were exiles, not living in their homeland, we, as well as Christians, are in some way exiles. Living in a land that's governed by powers that are not necessarily in line with our God and our Lord and has values, we, in a sense, are living as exiles. And so there's this waiting time as an exile in waiting. We're living in exiles in this world. And, and just like they were waiting for God to speak, I think we also feel this. We said, God, when are you going to act? Because around us we see evil and hurt and pain. We see disease. We see devastation. And we wait. We say, God, when are you going to act? And we see this evidence in Christmas carols, too. Um, I, th I thought of one of my favorites. I heard the bells on Christmas morning. You know that one? It's based on the poem by Henry Wordsworth Longfellow. And in the words of that song, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet, the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. This idea that we understand that the world is still broken, it's not fixed, and we're still waiting for God to act. We're waiting for God to make new and make right. Those first group of people in the Christmas story were waiting for God to act, but then he did. And that's what we remember at Christmas time. But I want to talk to you this morning specifically not about the work that God did in sending Jesus, sending his son. I want to talk to you about how he did the work, how he first engaged the world. 
We've been saying that for Christians living as exiles in the world around us, that we are supposed to be faithfully engaged in the world around us. We're not supposed to be about hopeless compromise. We're not supposed to be fearful isolation. We're not supposed to be restless revolt. We are supposed to be faithfully engaging the world around us. Well, how does God faithfully engage the world around us? Because it was very different than people would have expected. Because what God's people were waiting for in that first coming of Jesus was one, a conquering king. They wanted deliverance. I mean, they wanted a savior. They wanted salvation from their sins. That was all promised. But they also wanted saving from their current political country conditions. I mean, they they wanted a a king and a military person come in, set them free, God to just make things right. And that's what they were expecting in a lot of ways. But what they got was something very different. What they got was a God who came and conquered through a cross and an empty grave, which no one was expecting. And what they got was a God who came in a feeding trough in Palestine, and everybody was waiting for God, but nobody was looking in feeding troughs for him. Nobody was looking in a manger for him. And that's how God came. But I want to talk to you about that how. Because the thing with the manger is it's not only what God did, but how he did it. Have you ever thought about that? God could have come any way he wanted to come to this planet. He chose this way. He chose the manger I, think, I believe he was setting a tone right from the beginning, not just of what he would do, but how he would do it. And we sing a song called Away in a Manger, and I've heard uh, preachers through the years make a play on those words, right? Like that is a way, it is the way in a manger, right? It's Christ, he calls himself the way, right? It's clever, right? It's the way in a manger. But I think there's another way to look at it. I want to look at it this morning as the way of the manger. The way of the manger. Because that's the way God chose to come. And the Bible tells us again and again that we are supposed to be like Jesus. We are supposed to follow his example. And so often we think about the life of Jesus and what he did. But do you just think about, well, how did it start? That's the way of Jesus. It was the way he came. And I want to look at just two quick points about what it is about that way he came, what it is about the manger that I think is important for us to make sure we are not missing as ways that we are supposed to live our life for God too. And the first one is this, the way of the manger, or I'm going to call them the way of Jesus, is the way of incarnation. The way of incarnation. Uh, God came to be with us. Matthew, quoting the prophet Isaiah, says it this way, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God has always been about the with us life. God has always desired to be with his 
people. Going back from the very beginning, Adam and Eve, he was with them in the garden. You can go throughout the biblical history. Moses, the burning bush, God's presence was with him. The temple, the tabernacle, God was with them. And in the manger, we see once again that God wants to be with his people. And in the end of the book, in Revelation, we see ultimately God walks with and is with his people. We sang about that in that song, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. God is a with God people God. God did not just come for you. He came to be with you. He has given his presence, his Holy Spirit, to live with you, to walk with you, to guide you. But God didn't accomplish the work from afar off. He didn't accomplish it from a distance. He came in the flesh, the incarnation we call it, and he lived and he walked among us. God wants to be with you. But I also see this as the way of God. We as his people need to be present in this world to make a difference in this world. We need to be about incarnational ministry, ministry with flesh on, ministry of presence, not ministry necessarily just from a distance. That's why when we talk about global outreach, we send missionaries, we actually send people around the world to embody the message of Jesus to people who have never heard. We don't just send flyers. We don't just send technology. We don't just send videos. or We send people because we believe that people are going to be able to embody the message of Christ and bring it to where it needs to be. Eugene Peterson, in his version of the Bible, uh, says, uh, translates John chapter 1, verse 14 like this. He says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And I love that terminology. Jesus moved into the neighborhood. That's what Jesus did. He came and he lived in this little obscure place. I mean, we would have done it differently, but that's how God did it came down and lived among us. And if we're going to make a difference, if we're going to follow the example of Jesus, we also need to be present with people. This is all throughout Jesus' ministry. Why are you eating with sinners and tax collectors? Well, because they need to hear. They're sick and they need to be helped and healed. Why are you talking to that Samaritan woman? Well, because she needs to hear. She needs to hear about God's love for her. Why are you dealing with those children? I mean, send them away. Well, because they need to know that God loves them. It was always incarnational ministry. It was always presence. It was always there. And so it is with us too. But the second point I think we see in the manger that's important for us as followers is this. The way of Jesus is to lift up the humble and the lowly. The way of Jesus is to recognize and notice the humble and the lowly. After Mary heard from the angel that she was going to have this awesome thing happen through her, that God was going to do this awesome thing through her, and she was going to birth this baby that she didn't know the details all about or how it's going to happen or what, I know, all the long-term consequences. But she composes this song that we have recorded in Luke, and part of her song says this, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. 
The way of Jesus is to lift up the humble and the lowly, to meet the humble and the lowly right where they are. His strategy was a manger and a scared young girl and her confused, betrothed husband living in a small backwards fiefdom in an obscure corner of the Roman Empire governed by a maniacal despot at the time. And this is where God sends his son. He allowed angels who couldn't seem to keep things completely quiet to tell some dirty shepherds working the night shift about it. And some magicians from the east got the hint and figured out something was going on. But otherwise, he came like a quiet winter's evening snow, with most people not noticing it. The way you go to sleep at night, don't hear a thing and don't pay attention, but wake up and the landscape has changed. And that's the way Christ came. came to this little place. If he was born today in the United States, he, I mean, if it, we could just kind of play that thought exercise for a minute, he wouldn't be born on Capitol Hill. He wouldn't be born on, even on Beacon Hill. He'd be born in some small map dot that you've never heard of to an unwed teenage girl pledged to be married, you wouldn't be looking for him there. But he probably wouldn't even be born in the United States. I mean, if you look at the biblical story, he'd probably be born in maybe Haiti, poorest country in the Western Hemisphere in some little corner there. I don't know. But it would be someplace obscure. This is God's strategy. This was the way it happened. It's all interesting to me as I thought about it that Jesus was not born in Rome. It's not because God didn't know where it was. And it's not because God didn't know that the Roman Empire would be the powerful empire on earth at the time and that its seat of power would be Rome. He knew all that and he was not born in Rome. God knew all that and he chose not even Jerusalem but Bethlehem. What we see throughout Jesus' life is that the way of God is an upside-down kingdom. He came to preach the good news to the poor and the powerless. Not once does it say to go and preach the good news to rich people. But it says go and preach good news to the poor. Now, I don't think you're acting against Scripture if you tell rich people about Jesus. But if you never preach to the poor, you are. The Bible tells you to go preach this good news to the poor. If someone's going to build a kingdom, then we might expect them to come against or align themselves with the kingdom of the day, but Jesus doesn't do that. This is not the kingdom Jesus came to build. Jesus and his followers and all those who lived for God in exile had a subversive strategy. It was a strategy that lived for God within the structures but without compromising their walk with God. The kingdom of God was not about gathering the rich and becoming friends with the powerful. It was the way of obscurity. It was the way of suffering. The way of laying down his life and not grabbing for his rights. 
Paul in Philippians puts it this way as he tells us to follow Christ's example. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. In other words, this is the mind Christ had. You're supposed to have the same mind. You're supposed to act the same way. And he says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And you and I are to follow this example. 1 John chapter 2 says this, By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In other words... If you and I are going to say that we follow Jesus, we need to organize our lives around the same way that Jesus walked, around the same things and the same life that Jesus lived. And Jesus was incarnational. He was with people. He was present. And he was always around the humble and the lowly and going to them. We see that in the manger and we see that throughout Jesus's life. But it's not the way our world operates. Christ's kingdom was not and is not of this world like a worldly kingdom. His hope was not a kingdom of this world. He did not come to Rome, and he did not come to fight Rome, nor did he garner its favor. The gospel in its early days enjoyed the blessings of the Roman Empire at the time by taking advantage of its roads for travel It's common language for the message to spread. At least one time, the Apostle Paul called upon his Roman citizenship to keep him from being further beaten, if not killed. But their job was not to build the Roman Empire. I think we need to understand that. This is the way of the manger. It was different. It's not the way a worldly kingdom works. God is not about building a kingdom of this world, whether it's called Rome or America. It's not about building a kingdom that's going to be a kingdom of this world. The United States is not the kingdom of God. And I think that's an important distinction that needs to be made in our minds and in our lives. That our allegiance as Christians is to Christ and his kingdom and his principles. We live in a country that we may be citizens of and grateful for, but it is not the Christian kingdom. Let's not confuse citizenship with following Christ. Christians need to be very careful about too closely mixing up and confusing what it is to be a Christian with what it is to be an American. The way of the manger was not the way of power. It was not the way of prestige and riches and force, forcing the law on people. It was the way of the heart. God cares no more or less about people in America than in any other place on the planet. And he doesn't need America to accomplish his plan or any other country. And I think important for us to know and important for us to remember that as Christians, we are called to Christ I'm grateful for the blessings, again, of the country that we may live in with the way of Christ is the way of sacrifice, suffering, 
laying down our lives, not necessarily the way of power and prestige. I think as Christians and living out our witness in the world around us, we need to be very careful about our alignments and our allegiances and being clear that when we speak the message of Christ, it's able to be heard louder than anything else that we would speak and say. This is the way of the manger. As I said at the beginning, I don't think it's just about what God did. I think it's about how he did it. And if we just look at what he did and miss how he did it, I believe we're missing something that God would want to teach us. He could have come any way he wanted. He could have accomplished his work and his kingdom any way he wanted. To be fair, there were questions even in Jesus' time about the way he came. In fact, one of his closest friends, his cousin, John the Baptist, at one point had questions about it. John the Baptist, at one point, his cousin and the person that would, would uh, proclaim Jesus as the one they've been waiting for, as the Savior, found himself in prison because he had spoken out against the, the moral life of the local provincial governor. And he found himself in prison and possibly going to lose his life. And he's wondering... Is this Jesus really the one we've been waiting for? Because Rome's still in control, because we're still oppressed, and I'm in prison. And he actually sends some messengers to Jesus to ask, hey, did I get it wrong? Are you the one we're waiting for or not? Because the way that you're working isn't the way that I thought you'd work. And the way that you, what you're doing isn't what I, because I'm sitting in prison. And sometimes we think that. The way of God's kingdom is subversive and it's quiet and it works in a way that is upside down from the way our world forces its will on people. And so John sends these messengers and in Luke chapter 7 it says, and when the men had come to him, to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Here's what's interesting about that. John's like, I'm in prison. You're not doing what I thought you would do. Where's the conquering? You're not who I thought you would be. And Jesus said, well, let me share my credentials with you. Here's the credentials he shares. Blind, lame, lepers, deaf, dead, and poor. That's how you know who I am, what I'm doing. It was very different than they expected it to look. Everyone that society had cast away, Jesus was paying attention to. And he said, that's how you know this is the kingdom of God. The blind, the deaf, the poor, the lepers, the lame, the dead. When you see them having the good news of God spread to them, that's how you know. The kingdom of God is present. 
so different than the world we live in. So different than a world that grabs for power and tries to exert and grow its kingdom through power and riches and prestige. I'm going to ask our worship team to come so we prepare to respond, but a couple other things. I thought about where do I see this? Where's a good picture of how I see this, seeing this lived out? And a woman's name who went to be with the Lord last year, but was at our church for many years, came to my mind, Jean Frazier. And Jean was a woman who worshiped here for many years. She was a prayer warrior. She prayed for many of you who are in this room, prayed for services. She was an evangelist. She used to go and walk the Burlington Mall, and if you ever walked the Burlington Mall with Jean, what you knew, or what you better be prepared for, is she's going to tell someone about Jesus, because she's going to walk that Burlington Mall and pray for people and tell them about Jesus. She taught Sunday school classes here for many years, loved to teach on the book of Revelation. She'd at times receive a word from the Lord and pass it on to our congregation, and we would hear that and be blessed by that gift. But that's not any of what I want to point out this morning. What I want to point out this morning is one thing about Jean that none of you saw her do, some of you may have known about, that God called her to, which was a ministry to start a Bible study at the VA over in Bedford. And over at the VA in Bedford, that she would lead a Bible study for the long-term patients that were in there that couldn't leave. And she would go and she would tell me about when she would read this Bible study for quadriplegics, people who were paralyzed, and for at least one person I remember her telling me about who couldn't even talk. But they would wheel them into her Bible study and she would talk to them. And she would tell them about Jesus' love. And when she would tell them about the God who loved them, even though everyone else may have forgotten about them, even though everyone else may have pushed them aside, she would come and tell them there's a God who has not forgotten about them. God who loved them. And I believe that, what a great example of incarnational ministry. You gotta be present. You gotta be with your body in that place and speaking to the humble and the lowly. And so here's my challenge for us this morning. Here's my, I have one question for you this morning. I want you to think about this question. Who is the least powerful person in your life? Who's the one in your life that has the least amount of power and influence? Maybe it's because of their age. Maybe it's because they're so young that they have no power and influence. Little kids, right? I mean, this was the case in Jesus' day. Kids would come to Jesus and the disciples would be like, get out of here. You know, get away from the teacher. Don't bother him. You've got no power. You're not important. Go away. And Jesus would say, no, 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 bring them to me. They're important to me. But they weren't, they had no power. They were just dependents in that society. Who's the least powerful person in your life? Maybe it's because of age, but it's on the other end of the spectrum. Maybe it's someone who is older, who has been pushed aside and forgotten about because you don't produce anymore, because you don't work anymore, because you don't give out anymore, because you only take or receive. Maybe it's someone that, that isn't able to care for themselves and is on that end of the spectrum, and they're the least powerful person that you know. Maybe it's someone with socioeconomic status that makes them, that drains them of any power of influence because of their station in life and in society and, and, and in the life that they are the least powerful person you know. 
If you're a student in school, I don't know, who's the least powerful person? Who's the one that nobody likes, nobody pays attention to in school? Who's the least, the least popular? Maybe it's because of their physical condition or limitations. That they're not able to do what others are able to do. That they're, they're literally dependent on other people to just do the basic functions of life. Maybe it's someone in a hospital. Maybe it's someone with mental limitations that isn't able to function and think and act the way that others think. Who is the least powerful person that God has placed in your life? I think many of us would sit here and say, I don't even know a person like that, and that ought to tell us something. But someone's got to be the least. Someone in your life is the one that God has placed there, and they, they got no pull, they got no juice, they got nothing going. They, they're just, who is that person? The way of the manger, the way of Jesus, would have you go preach the good news to them to go and share on a regular basis, to show the love of Jesus to them, to love them, and to share with them about the message that Jesus has come for them, that God loves them, that through faith in Christ, they might have forgiveness in life. It's not just what he did. It's how he did it and how he calls us to live too. It's not the ways of this world. It's the ways of our God. Lord, thank you for this word, Lord. And God, thank you for coming, not just in your coming, but how you came. Because how you came gives dignity and life to the humble and the lowly. Because how you came shows us that anyone can come that anyone can encounter you, that anyone can be touched by you. Lord, forgive us and show us the places in our own heart and our own lives where we have been caught up with the thinking of this world, where we have missed the upside-down kingdom, where we have said, where we have elevated the people of this world who this world says important are important instead of seeing the people around us who you say are important. Forgive us for trying to accomplish your will through human means. What our prayer is, your kingdom come and your will be done. But Lord, it has to be your kingdom and your will and in your way. So help us, Lord, whatever that name or that face is that you've brought to our minds and our hearts. Help us to show and share Jesus with them and to love them in the way that you've called us to. In Jesus' name.